Warm greetings, everyone, and a joyful Feast of Tabernacles to you all. The Feast of Tabernacles is a seven-day feast picturing the millennial rule of Christ. The millennial rule of Christ is the seventh millennium by biblical reckoning, and we are near the end of 6,000 years of human history in this current age. In this seventh month, we observe a great seven-day feast that pictures the kingdom of God and the millennial rule of Christ. Turn, if you would, please, to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. This is not necessarily about how God receives time. If you'll look closely at the verses surrounding these two I'm going to read, they have a millennial context. Verse 8, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Now think for a moment. What day is like a thousand years? And what thousand years is like a day? Well, the Sabbath day is like a thousand years and a very specific Sabbath uh, thousand years. It is God's millennial Sabbath. So today, let's look at the relationship between the Sabbath and the millennial rule of Christ in the kingdom of God. The title of this sermon is The Sabbath and the Millennium. Turn, if you would, please, to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. Verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, according to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8. So, First of all, the first point I'd like to go over today is there's so much that we can understand about the keeping of the Sabbath and how that relates to other things in the Bible. So let's start by looking at what the Sabbath teaches us about the beginning, about the beginning of this age. Turn, if you would, please, to Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. Then, referring to after he had rested, he blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested or had rested from all his work which God had created and made. Turn, if you would, please, to Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. These are the commandments. Let's read the one about the Sabbath. It begins, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, 
You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your cattle, or the stranger that is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. He made it holy. Now, the Sabbath day is holy. And this commandment is the most comprehensive of all of the commandments. It covers several things. and It is very important that we know them. It gives us four things. It commands us four things. The first one is what we are commanded to do. The second is when we are commanded to do it. The third is how we are commanded to do it. And the fourth is why. So let's begin with the first one. Remember the Sabbath to keep it what? Convenient? Restful? No, to keep it holy. We are to remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. That is the Sabbath commandment. The second thing is when we are to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day, the seventh day of the cycle of seven, is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. How are we to do it? In it you shall do no work. We rest on that day. Our whole household is at rest. Our son, our daughter, our manservant, our maidservant, our animals, all the things, that is, that even the strangers that are within our gates, they are to rest. And then why? Because in six days God completed his work. The heavens, the earth, and sea that, all in, that are in them. And then he blessed the Sabbath day. He blessed it, made it good, made it wonderful for us, and he made it holy. Notice that the commandment begins with remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, and it ends with the fact that God made the Sabbath day holy. Holy means that it is set apart for divine use. We have all of our weekly activities that we're involved in, all of our labors, all of the things that we do to try to live and support ourselves, but the Sabbath is set apart, sanctified, and made holy by God for a special reason, for a special purpose. It is the profane as opposed to the sacred. If we bring the weekly activities into what God has set apart, we profane it. Therefore, he said, keep it holy. When the sun goes down on Friday night, the time becomes holy. It's not up to you or me to make it holy. God tells us to keep it holy. God made it so. We are commanded to keep it holy. Another thing about this commandment that's very interesting is it is an affirmative commandment or a prescriptive commandment. It tells us something that we are to do. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. There are another commandment is like that, for instance. Honor your father and your mother. That is something you are to do. Now, one person may honor their father one way and their mother one way, and another may honor them another way. But the idea is to honor our parents, to love them. Well, the same way with the Sabbath. We are to do something. We are to keep it holy by ceasing from our labors and resting in that time and giving ourselves up to spiritual recreation, the good things that God has made possible for us in his church. Sometimes when people become over-focused on the prohibitive part of it, the way we're to keep it holy, they may forget the actual commandment itself. These people tend to fall into two categories. Sometimes they'll become super picky about what shouldn't be done. 
we shouldn't do this and shouldn't do that, and I want to limit every activity as much as I can. Other times, they'll go in the other direction, saying that the spirit of the Sabbath commandment is resting. So anything that they can do to make the Sabbath commandment more pleasurable, why, that's good, even if they ignore what God said to do to keep it holy. This, of course, is an error in both cases. The commandment is, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. So the spirit of the Sabbath is in its holiness and in its sanctity. And, of course, making it pleasant to do so is a wonderful thing to do as long as that involves setting the Sabbath apart and magnifying the holiness and sanctity of that day. The church has always taught this, and you can see this by going back to the old booklet, Purple Booklet on the Sabbath that was done by Herbert W. Armstrong. Turn, if you would, please, to Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. And I'm going to read this from the King James Version and then read it again from a modern translation. Verse 13. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from during your pleasure on my Sabbath day, And call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. Then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth, and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Notice he is saying, turn your foot away from doing your pleasure. That could mean your weekly work, your weekly activities, any of the things that you may enjoy doing from the week, to turn those things away from what is holy and God has made holy for you. Let's read this again in Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. I'll read this from the New International. It's in modern English. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight, And the Lord's holy day honorable, if you honor it by not doing your own way, and not doing as you please, or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land, and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So here's a question for you. Do you delight in the holiness of the Sabbath? Do you delight in the holiness and sanctity of the Sabbath. You know, for me in my house, when the sun goes down on Friday, ideally, I would like for my Sabbath day to be as different and as set apart and as sanctified from the rest of the week as the kingdom of God will be from this age. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be wonderful if our Sabbaths can be that way? The spirit of the Sabbath commandment is in its holiness. So in our prayers for the Sabbath, let's pray that God will make his holiness a delight and a special thing to us. What a wonderful thing he has given us. Some people say that the Wakefields are conservative about the Sabbath. Well, to me, we're enthusiastic about the Sabbath. The holiness of God's Sabbath is truly a delight if we'll only think of it that way. It's in his holiness. So why is God's Sabbath day holy? Well, it's because the holy mountain of God is holy. The holy mountain of God is what it pictures. 
because God's family is holy. Is it any wonder that the Holy Sabbath is a sign between God and his holy people? Well, the physical Israel or spiritual Israel, which is the Israel of God. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. That's an interesting statement. We are to be holy. We are a people called out of this world. This world is filled with Satan's kingdom, Satan's mountain, so to speak. He rules this world. He is the prince of this world, and it is subject to him for the time being during this age. But God has set apart a holy people. He's given us his spirit and set us apart. So we are to be holy because God is holy. If we are going to be in the family of God, we also must be holy. The Sabbath teaches us that our Lord, Jesus Christ, who is Yahweh the Old Testament, through whom all things were made, restored the earth at the beginning of this age, and will restore it again in the next age, in the millennial Sabbath. God creates, but the adversary is the destroyer. The Sabbath day is made holy and set aside for special purpose. And in doing this, God prophesies that the millennial seventh day will be set aside for a special purpose also. No Satan. Revelation 13, verse 8. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. God has an ancient plan for mankind. And this plan has existed for a long, long time. Verse 8. All who dwell in the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. From the foundation of the world, from the very beginning, God had a plan for mankind. And the Sabbath teaches us that God is the creator, and he has had a purpose for his creation from the beginning. Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. He is Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Our Father is birthing children. He is creating sons, and he is providing a kingdom for that family. The Sabbath existed from the beginning of this age, just as it will exist in the world's millennial Sabbath. Those who deny the Sabbath, in an important respect, are denying God's great purpose, his good news for mankind, the gospel of the kingdom of God itself. Turn to Isaiah 66 and verse 23. Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 23. <clears throat> These are some very good scriptures to read during the Feast of Tabernacles. I hope we will all read them several times. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come up to worship before me. All flesh, brethren, are going to keep the Sabbath in the kingdom of God. Turn back a few pages to Isaiah 56 and verse 6. Isaiah 56 and verse 6. It reads, Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him, 
and to serve the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, that is, keeping it holy, and holds fast to my covenant. Even the foreigners, even the Gentile nations, will keep the Sabbath day in the kingdom of God. Zechariah 14 and verse 16. Zechariah 14 and verse 16. Not only the Sabbath days, but also the holy days as well. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Brethren, the Sabbath is a prophecy. The Sabbath is a prophecy. And those who want to do away with the Sabbath also deny the gospel of the kingdom of God. Second point I'd like to make today. Second point is that the Sabbath exists for man. Just as the kingdom of God will exist and God is putting it in place for the benefit of all mankind. I remember a long time ago, there was a man who had really gone away from our faith, and he said something to me when I was asking him about it, and he said, well, you know, I've had so much trouble on my job that the Sabbath has been a burden for me. And I was just flabbergasted. I hardly knew what to say. The Sabbath, a burden? The Sabbath is one of the greatest blessings in my life, and I think it probably is for yours as well. It's a great blessing in the lives of all of God's children. Some people say that it's only for our Jewish friends. The Sabbath is not just for our Jewish friends, just like the other nine commandments are not for a particular group of people. God's commandments are for all people. And the Bible contradicts the view that the Sabbath was only made for one group of people. The Sabbath was made for man, for mankind. And that's because the Sabbath was, uh, the millennial Sabbath, rather, of Christ is for all of mankind as well. The Sabbath is for all of mankind, just as the kingdom of God is for all the peoples of the world. Some say that there's no Sabbath and it's done away with. Well, there are ten commandments, brethren, not the nine suggestions. We have something I chuckle about sometimes. I call it the 9-10-9-10 theory. You may have heard this sometime before. Sometimes people try to reason that there were nine commandments before the Old Covenant at Mount Sinai, then ten commandments after the Old Covenant at Mount Sinai, then nine commandments after Christ's death, and then ten commandments in the kingdom of God. Well, some say... Also, that when Jesus died, in effect, the Ten Commandments were all thrown up in the air and only nine came down. Well, that's just wrong. That is incorrect. They are the Ten Commandments, brethren, not the nine suggestions. And the Church of God keeps all ten in loving obedience to God. All of these excuses, in effect, deny the gospel of the kingdom of God. Because God's Sabbath pictures it. Is Christ's millennial rule really a burden? The world thinks so, and to such an extent that they will violently oppose it when he comes, just as they oppose 
and profane the Sabbath. Now they will oppose the beginning of the millennial Sabbath when the Lord of the Sabbath comes. Matthew 24 and verse 30. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30. Here we have the whole world mourning, going into mourning, lamenting the arrival of Jesus Christ. Leading up to that time, there's going to be such darkness in the world that men will gnaw their tongues out of pain, the Bible tells us. God says, you like darkness, you're lovers of darkness, he is going to give them darkness. They like blood, they like violence, he's going to give them blood up to the bridles of horses. He says, you like war, you like to fight and contend, he is going to give them such a war as they have never seen. 200 million people coming out to fight Christ when he comes. He says, you like to profane and desecrate the beautiful world and the environment that God has created. He's going to show them what that really looks like. You like to reject the Sabbath? Well, he's going to let them see what happens when they reject the millennial rule of Christ as it becomes, as it comes to the world. You like deception? The world loves deception because it allows them to do what they want to do anyway. But he's going to let the whole world be deceived and follow a man who is perhaps possessed by Satan himself to be deceived the whole world. And then Satan is going to put his entire kingdom, his entire profane mountain up against Christ when Christ comes. And Christ is going to wipe it out and destroy it. Brethren, Jesus Christ is not coming to reform Satan's mountain or to reform Satan's kingdom. He's coming to destroy it and to replace it. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The thousand-year Sabbath begins, and we rejoice, brethren. We rejoice, but the world mourns. If everyone had to keep the Sabbath and holy days now, they think they would be burdened and unhappy. But, of course, we know that the world is deceived at this time. Zechariah 14, verses 17 through 19. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 17 through 19. Correcting all of this is going to take some work. Verse 17. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there shall be no rain. If the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Keeping the Sabbath is a test of obedience to God's government. And God's holy, righteous time identifies, it identifies a holy, obedient people. The wisdom of many of the commandments, of course, can be seen by people who Uh, do not have God's spirit and who do not even believe in or worship God or believe in what he has told them. It's easy to see 
why it is wrong to kill or to steal or to lie or other of the commandments. So people um, might think that it's wise to avoid adultery or other things like this that we see in the Bible. But the Sabbath is different. The Sabbath is revelatory. You can't go outside and look around and say, well, I think it's the Sabbath day today. You can't get out your pocket calculator and figure it out. There's nothing about the world physically that would cause you to know that it is the Sabbath. The Sabbath is revelatory. And to me, it's just a miraculous thing, just as the millennial Sabbath is going to be a miraculous thing. Only God's obedient people are willing to accept God's telling them what day and what time is holy. They're willing to do it, and it distinguishes God's people from those who haven't repented of breaking it. Keeping the Sabbath requires living faith. You believe that the Sabbath is holy. You believe that it is God's special day, and then we act on that belief. We show living faith by keeping the Sabbath. Both the Sabbath and the kingdom of God that it pictures are revelatory. You can't figure out their existence on your own. You must believe and then act on that faith. Exodus 31, verses 12 and 13. Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 and 13. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. The Lord who sanctifies you. The Lord who makes you holy. The Sabbath is an expression of the holiness of God's people who will become his holy mountain. Verse 17. Verse 17 of Exodus 31, it is also a type of God's millennial age. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, picturing the seventh millennial day, he rested and was refreshed. In the millennial Sabbath, the labor of the sons of God, which is going to be of the order of Melchizedek, will be for a great, holy, spiritual purpose. The sons of God are going to be kings and priests in the kingdom of God. The world currently is in captivity to Satan for 6,000 years of this age. But in God's kingdom, the world will finally have a rest, the glorious liberty of the sons of God. We need liberation, brethren. This world needs liberation. We have our liberation in Christ himself. The world will have its liberation in Christ from the adversary in the age to come. The millennial rest that God's plan is greatly needed by this world. And also, well, we need rest from our physical labors also in this difficult age that we have. What a blessing God has provided for us in his Sabbath. And what a blessing he will provide for us in his millennial Sabbath to come. Luke 12, verse 32. Luke chapter 12 and verse 32. 
Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God's looking forward to giving you the kingdom, just as, you know, we look forward to the Sabbath. I don't know about you, but probably late in the week, you're probably getting to where I am at that point. You're saying, I'm looking forward to the Sabbath. And late in the afternoon on Friday, even though I really enjoy working at headquarters, I'm beginning to look forward to going home and having a pleasant evening with my wife and family at my home. In the millennial Sabbath, the labor of the sons of God will be for a holy spiritual purpose. Mark 2, 27. Mark 2, 27. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What a wonderful blessing God has given us in this. So we see the Sabbath is made for mankind, just as the millennial rule of Christ is made for mankind as well. Christ is the hope of the world, of the whole world. And God's family is open to all peoples. Therefore, the Sabbath is for all peoples. Let me repeat that. It's important that we remember God's family is open to all peoples. And his Sabbath is open to all peoples also. Just as all of his other commandments are a blessing for us all. God is no respecter of persons. And the Sabbath pictures the kingdom of God. Preaching the meaning of the Sabbath, as I'm doing today, is also an important way of preaching the kingdom of God. And when you keep the Sabbath and you're obeying God by doing that every week, in your own way, you're demonstrating the kingdom of God, God's millennial rest to come. You're doing that by your example. Point number three. Point number three. Christ is Lord of the Sabbath just as he will be Lord and King of his millennial kingdom. Turn to Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28. Sometimes the scripture is used to assert that it's okay to break one of God's laws if you think you really need to. Reading in verse 23, Now it happened that he, referring to Christ, went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do that which is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? And those with him, how he went to the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said for them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord, also Lord of the Sabbath. I'll mention also that Matthew 12, verse 7 adds, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Did Jesus break the Sabbath here? 
did he steal grain? Sometimes people use this as an excuse to say, well, it's okay to violate the Sabbath or profane the Sabbath or do some work on the Sabbath if you think maybe you really need to. Well, he didn't do that. We won't do a complete analysis of this, but let's go through a couple of things. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 25. Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verse 25. This scripture gives us a hint. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. It's just like the law of gleaning. A person can go in and take what they may eat, whether grapes or grain, as they stand there, but they can't harvest it. That's stealing. But just taking what you need, you need to eat on the spot is not harvesting and is not stealing grain. The Jewish oral law held that there were some 39 things that constituted work on the Sabbath, and harvesting was one of those things. And they had many traditions about this, and they regarded their traditions as being the law itself. This is the rabbinical or the oral tradition interpreted the law, and they considered that to be the equivalent of the law itself. But it is lawful, to serve what food you may eat on the Sabbath. And they didn't question that. Were the disciples harvesting or serving themselves some food? The Pharisees looked for righteousness in the most strict interpretation. So the lawgiver gave them a lesson in the law. Jesus, when he disputed the Pharisees, was usually disputing with their interpretations of the law according to the rabbinical traditions, which were incorrect. Because there was no theft and there was also no profaning of the Sabbath, the disciples had not sinned. Jesus then explained the error that the Pharisees and the religious authorities had made. Turn to 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 7. 1 Samuel chapter 21 and verses 1 through 7. This is an interesting little Bible study to do. Let's have a look at it. This is the account of David and the showbread, which, the, um, which Jesus mentioned to them. Beginning in verse 1, Now David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid when he met David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one is with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has ordered me on some business and said to me, Do not let anyone know anything about the business on which I sent you or what I have commanded you. And I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what have you on hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. Now, let's see what he says. There is holy bread if the young men have at least kept themselves from women. Then David answered the priest and said to him, Truly women have been kept from us for about three days since I came out. And the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in effect common, even though it was sanctified in the vessel this day. So the priest gave him holy bread, for there was no bread but the showbread 
which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it was taken away. So what's going on here? Why is this happening? Where in the Bible does it say that saying, uh, refraining from uh, sexual activity with women somehow sanctifies a person ceremonially? Don't forget, it was unlawful for the priest to eat the bread if they were unsanctified. The reason why the priest gave them the bread was because the young men were, in a sense, ceremonially sanctified. Where in all of the Bible does it say that? Well, it turns out that there is a place. Exodus 19, verses 14 and 15. Exodus 19, verses 14 and 15. The children of Israel had come up to Mount Sinai, and they were about to see or be or to meet their husband, the Lord upon the mountain, which was full of thunders and lightnings. Verse 13, now a hand shall, uh, verse 13, now a hand shall touch him, not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow, man or beast, and shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. And Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people. He sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. That was the way he sanctified the people. David's men were ceremonially sanctified, so it was not unlawful for them to take the bread. And that was the point that Jesus was making. The high priest went all the way back to Mount Sinai to find a precedent out of mercy to allow these men who are likely starving to have something to eat. The point of all of this is that David didn't break the law. Not that he did break it and that it was okay. And it's the point also for Christ's disciples was that they did not violate the laws or the statutes. Not that they did and that it was okay. There's an article about this, if you would like to read it, in the September-October year 2000 Living Church News. Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. This is point number three. Christ is Lord of the Sabbath, just as he will be Lord King of his millennial kingdom. In Mark chapter 2, verse 28, it says, Therefore the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Then Matthew Matthew 12, 7 and 8 adds some additional comments. It says, verse 7, But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Turn, if you would, please, to Revelation 19. Verses 11 through 16. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Here's what it means to be Lord of the Sabbath. Now I saw heaven open, and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. 
he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and on his and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Brethren, Jesus is Lord of the Millennial Sabbath, just as he is Lord of the Weekly Sabbath. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. We are reading here an image of this mighty, powerful ruler, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here's the description. And when I saw an angel, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hands, laid hold on the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years, which is the millennial Sabbath, were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Jesus Christ is coming back as a ruler, as a king, in great power and in great glory. And he is going to put down, I like the word shut up the adversary, because I know that means shut him up in Tartaru in a place of restraint, but this is also the adversary who accuses the brethren day and night. We're not going to have to listen to that. The world will be free of that during for a thousand-year period. Jesus, the Lord, has already defeated Satan, though. Turn, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. This is the incident where Christ was tempted by Satan. He had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He had just begun his ministry. Mr. Armstrong used to call this the greatest battle of all time. Everything was on the table. If Satan could tempt, could defeat Christ, could get him to sin at this time, then um, he would have, um, Satan would have won, and we would be the big losers. Jesus said to him, It is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. So he answered that question, and in verse 8 he said, Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to them, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. Yahweh, your God. Christ literally said to Satan, You should be worshiping me, Satan, not me worshiping you. This is an extremely interesting incident here. He said, On this exceedingly high mountain. Well, anytime you see mountains mentioned, or frequently when you see mountains mentioned in the Bible, they refer to governments. In the Old Testament, we read about the mountain of this nation or the mountain of that nation. And mountains generally refer 
to governments, either symbolically or explicitly in the Bible. So let's look at what happened here. Satan takes Christ up on a high mountain. And many people say that there's no mountain in the world from which you can see all the kingdoms of the world. Where is such a mountain? The earth is round, and you can't see cities that are farther around on the other side. So they offer this as proof, they say, that the Bible is uh, written by men, and it simply reflects the flat worldview of that time. But in fact, brethren, there is such a mountain. There is such a mountain from which you can see all of the kingdoms of the world. Where were they looking? Where were they looking? Often people have the idea, well, they are looking out at the horizon. But the Bible doesn't say in what direction Satan was looking and Christ was looking when Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Now think about the shape of a mountain. It's large at the bottom and small at the top like a government. Think of a conical mountain. If you're standing on top of a conical mountain, what can you see all of in a moment of looking? Think. The mountain itself. You can see the mountain itself in a moment of looking. They were standing on top of a spiritual reality, Satan's mountain, Satan's kingdom that fills the whole world and all of the glories of all of the nations of the earth were visible at that time. Satan's kingdom was offered to Christ. All of the kingdoms of the world, if Christ would only subordinate himself to Satan the devil. And Jesus Christ blew him away with the breath of his lips when he said, You should be worshiping me, Satan, not me worshiping you. You should worship the Lord your God, and him only should you serve. With that, Satan, who was all in, lost. And after that point, Christ completed his ministry. He died on the cross for our sins, was resurrected, and he sits at the right hand of God in glory. And he is coming back. Satan is in his end game. He lost that day. Christ has already defeated him. And Satan knows now that he has but a short time. Currently, Satan's mountain fills the earth. But Jesus Christ's mountain is going to replace it. Let's read about that a little bit. Turn to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 35. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 35. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is a very vivid description of all of the kingdoms of the world. The, uh, the, the kingdoms of Babylon, from the head of Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire, to the Greeks, to the Romans, down to the ten toes, which are forming up in our time. And the stone that was cut out without hands struck this image, the current system of this world, and became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. This is the holy mountain of God. It was Jesus Christ who gave this prophecy And he, no doubt, or I suspect, remembered that when he was confronted by Satan at that temptation. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. A wonderful scripture to read during the Feast of Tabernacles. Most encouraging. Let's read it now. 
Now it came, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. It shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Brethren, the mountain of the Lord and the house of the God of Jacob, God's family, is the mountain of the Lord, the holy mountain of God. He will teach us his ways. We shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Luke 6, verse 46. Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. But Jesus said this to the people of his day. Verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? It's a good question. Is Jesus your Lord? If someone doesn't keep the day that he is Lord of, how can they truthfully say that he is? If someone denies his kingdom, for instance, they may say, oh, that's just an allegory. The kingdom of God is just an allegory. Or the kingdom of God is in the hearts of men. Or the kingdom of God is up in heaven somewhere. That is not the gospel of the kingdom of God. How then is he their Lord? If someone denies his Sabbath, is he then, the, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, then their Lord? The kingdom of God, brethren, is a real kingdom. Jesus is the King of kings, Lord of lords, and the firstborn of many holy sons of God. Now point number four. Where are we now in this 7,000-year scheme of things? You know, we have a doctrine regarding 7,000 years. In the Jewish tradition, it dates back to ancient times that we have... 6,000 years for mankind to try everything, establish his own institutions, go his own way, and to prove without a doubt that mankind does not know the way to peace or the way of life. And then we have the millennial Sabbath that comes after that. Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and tested him, and asked what if he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, do you not know how to discern the face of the sky? But you cannot discern, rather you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the, the signs of the times. We are supposed to be able to discern the signs of the times. Matthew 24, 32 through 34. Matthew 24, verses 32 through 34. Jesus said, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that the summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near, at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. And then, verses 42 through 44, he continues, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, 
he would have watched and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Mark 13, 35 through 37. Mark 13, 35 through 37. Once again, he's giving the same instruction, but he adds something to the end of it. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, in the midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest, coming suddenly, he finds you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to all. Watch. What we are to watch for in these times is how events relate to biblical prophecy. And one of the things the church does with our magazines, with our television programs, with our written materials, is that we relate current events and the times that we are in to the biblical narrative. God has given us a 7,000-year period of time, a complete biblical narrative showing the past of history that is of interest to God's plan, but also showing the future history in prophecy for what is going to happen. And God promises us that these things are true and that they will happen. We are not only permitted to watch for our Lord and observe the signs of the time, brethren, we are required to do this. And watching the times is not setting dates. It's not the same thing. So remember what Christ said, watch, watch for his coming. Point number five, preparation for the weekly Sabbath is very important and is a type and a picture when we do that of our preparation for God's millennial Sabbath. Exodus 16, verses 4 through 5. Exodus chapter 16 and verses 4 and 5. And also 21 through 30. Then the Lord says to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be in the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. 21 through 30. Verse 21. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. So it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any uh, worms in it. Then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is the Sabbath of the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days shall you gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. 
Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place, that no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So in this, God did two things. He reestablished the Sabbath. The Israelites had lost the Sabbath while they were in Egypt, just as most of us had lost the Sabbath while we were in our personal Egypts, while we were in the world. But when we came out, God established the Sabbaths in our lives. But he also showed us about a time of preparation, that we should prepare for the Sabbath so that we can rest and do what God commands us to do. Preparation Day should have a special meaning for us. Let's look at some of these things. John 14, verses 1 through 3. John chapter 14, and we'll begin in verse 2. Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Christ is preparing. He is preparing for his millennial Sabbath. This is a lesson that we should learn also. The church also prepares. Revelation 19, 6 through 8. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saint. Brethren, the day of preparation has spiritual significance for us as well as an important physical function. We should prepare to uh, make the sanctity and the holiness of the Sabbath the delight. If we let our week's activities follow us in and we our Sabbath day is complicated by all of the things that we need to do back in the week, then how can we make the Sabbath all that it needs to be? We need to prepare for the weekly Sabbath just as we need to prepare for God's millennial Sabbath. And if we don't, the world's cares will come in to God's sanctified, set-apart, holy time. When you prepare for the weekly Sabbath, remember what it pictures And that's helpful and motivating. And also, I would suggest, remember that Preparation Day begins Thursday night. That is the beginning of the sixth day of the week. Point number six. We've talked about the Sabbath in the beginning. Now let's look at the end. Let's catch the vision of the Sabbath and the Feast of Tabernacles, which pictures God's rest for his people and for the whole world, the completion of his work and creating his family. This is what the Sabbath teaches us about the end of this age. Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, in order to establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Brethren, Christ says, 
It is our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. He wants to do this. He's been preparing for 6,000 years and even before that to give his children this kingdom. Brethren, we have been given the knowledge of the Sabbath. We have been given the knowledge of the gospel of the kingdom of God. But do we have the vision? Do we keep that vision year-round? Can we see it in our minds? You know, the Bible tells us that Abraham saw it afar off. And as we're getting closer and closer, we're seeing more and more of the prophetic details being filled in. And as we see them, we talk about them and teach them. But we are much closer now than he was then. Can we see it? I'd like to offer you a way to see it every week. You can see God's Sabbath. And you can see the millennial rule of Christ in it. When we participate in the Sabbath, when we keep it holy and we do what God commands us, this is a small version of of God's millennial Sabbath that we are pictured that we have in our lives. In our homes, a typical home, we will have all of the family images, father, son, husband, wife, all of these things that are going to be part of the millennial Sabbath in their spiritual reality. God planned his great kingdom from the beginning, and he has put into our lives a seven-day week that has survived the world's cultures for thousands of years. This weekly Sabbath is to help us catch the vision of the kingdom of God, and it's a constant reminder that Christ is both the author and finisher of our faith. As sure as the sun sets each Friday night, God's word teaches us that the great vision of the Feast of Tabernacles will be realized. Let's catch that vision and let's keep it year-round by remembering that the Holy Sabbath pictures God's family and the holy mountain of God in his kingdom. I wish you all a most enjoyable Feast of Tabernacles.